Well, as those ladies make their way back to their seat, it's appropriate as we celebrate and honor our graduates and their hard work is acknowledging that behind those graduates and behind uh, many other children here in this room is the reality of mothers. Happy Mother's Day to you ladies uh, in this room. We are so grateful for your service and for your sacrifice and for the recognition of God's uh, kindness uh, being poured out in and through you. Now, we also recognize to speak of mothers is not an easy thing for some of us uh, in this room. And some of us approach this day with more uh, fear and, and trepidation and with sorrow. Some who wish to be mothers and are not. Uh, some who have mothers who have gone on to be uh, with the Lord. And this day is marked with grief. Some with memories that are very hard of their upbringing. I want you to just take in mind right now as you sit in this room the reality of those stories. They're all around you, and in a variety of ways they're playing out. What may be a day of tremendous joy may be a day of tremendous sorrow for someone really close to you. And that's what it means to be a part of the family of God. That we come into this place as we are with the realities of that which we have experienced in this life, good, bad, and ugly, and we bring it to the feet of Jesus and we leave it there. And that's what we're doing even now as we enter in uh, to worship and to this part of our service with regards to hearing from God's Word. So if you have your bulletins, you might look on with me, or if you have a Bible, that's even better. Open it up and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we'll be this morning looking at verse 30 through verse 41 in Mark chapter 9, uh, three sections in um, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, tied together around this theme of key, the key to greatness, be a servant of all. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. They, that is Jesus uh, and his disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, now as we give our attention over to this, uh, your word, we would ask that you would be mindful of our need for it and that you would give attention to us in and through it. Come and minister to our souls that the testimony of our time would be that we have met with the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had arrived about 10 minutes early that day for the lunch meeting. The receptionist had caught me at the door and had queried who I was there to meet, mentioned the man's name, and then set me uh, by his office door. As I sat there, I heard some commotion that was beginning to stir inside that room. I sat there a little longer, and I noticed voices were getting a little louder. And before long, as I sat there, it was clear that a verbal brawl of some sort was taking place inside that room. The person who I'd come to eat with had actually forgotten that our lunch was to be that day, He wasn't expecting me to be there as I sat there out there in the lobby. And it wasn't long before the time had passed and um, I was about to get up and just excuse myself uh, from the place. And then he tore out of the room uh, with papers flying behind him, clearly angry and upset, barking at his administrative assistant And then as he did, he turned around and he saw me. And you can imagine how he felt. He held, as it were, his own head in his hands, proverbially speaking, and had forgotten today was the day of our lunch. I told him that I was happy to have a late lunch and would love to spend some time with him. And so we did. On our way to lunch, he was confessing some of the sins that were obviously taking place in that room and then had acknowledged of how overwhelmed he was by the plummeting numbers of the business and trying to keep this ship afloat and all of the difficult people that he had to work with uh, there at the company He had started the company many years earlier. It had had soaring sales for a long period of time. He felt very much in control until some competition in town had cut his earnings in half. And he was not prepared to sort of face the music on what was happening with his business. But underneath all of that was a spiritual matter that he addressed with me, and he said it in a very simple kind of way. He just said, I'm afraid with all of the success of the business and where I am today that I have begun to believe that I was kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. Some of us probably know what that's like to have drawn the conclusion that we were kind of a big deal and maybe gotten to the point where we realized that, okay, maybe we're not. He was having that sort of moment. The disciples are having that sort of moment here in Mark chapter 9, believe it or not, in the two conflicts that are before us. The conflict within the ranks of the disciples regarding who is the greatest 
And then a conflict between the disciples here presented through the Apostle John specifically as he tells that person who's out there exercising demons in the name of Jesus to just stop it. This conflict in the ranks of the disciples, and we might say the conflict between the ranks of the disciples and other ministry servants, actually reveals to us that they think they're a kind of a big deal. And Jesus wants to tell them what it means to be a big deal. A true, humble servant in the kingdom of God. I want you to see as we make our way through this passage, really these points of application. Uh, I want you to see two ways that pride is revealed in this text, and then some evidences of it, and then one way that pride is remedied. Two ways that pride is revealed in this text, and then one way that pride is, is remedied. Now, notice at the beginning of our text that the disciples are returning to, to well, uh, back to their old stomping grounds, we might say, there in Galilee. They're in someone's home. The person is, is not named, but tradition is likely correct in believing that this is Peter's house somewhere on the northern shore of Galilee, right there near Capernaum. As they arrive in Capernaum, it's Jesus who ultimately queries of them that, that question that moves the narrative along here in Mark 9. Hey, I heard you guys arguing back there about something. What was it that you were talking about? Now, there's no reason, of course, to believe that Jesus didn't know what it was that they were, were talking about. It's possible that he had um, overheard them being close in earshot from where they were as they were traveling. He may have even gained spiritual insight with, with regards to what they were talking about. But regardless of what the circumstance is, Jesus sees a teaching moment. He wants to speak to them clearly about what it means to be a servant in the kingdom of God. And he says, so you're hip deep in an argument. What was it about? Crickets. Not a word comes from the disciples. They're having a little bit of the moment that the man I mentioned earlier had had. The moment he saw me sitting outside his office door, a moment of embarrassment. This is partly how humility often comes to us, and believe it or not, this is God's kindness. Humility often comes on the edge of humiliation. Here are the disciples, totally silent, not even willing uh, to speak what it is that they were talking about, but Mark lets us in on it. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, I was on the ball field most of yesterday, and between games, I got the chance to, to, to eat a hot dog, which you should always do when you're at the ball field. And as I was eating my hot dog, there was a, there was a, a gathering of students and players over here to my, my right, and they had just finished a game, and they were talking about the game, and they were numbering their hits among one another. I got two hits. I got three hits. Yeah, but you had that error at third base. And, and you know, I, th I think really if we're going to credit the game, it's got to be to so-and-so and not to you. And it's this clear argument about who is the greatest it's often humorous when we see it take place among children as they argue about who is uh, the greatest. But we adults, in many ways, are having that argument silently in our heads all of the time. Maybe even comparing notes this morning as we enter into worship. 
The disciples are essentially doing that. They're looking back over their body of work as disciples, comparing notes with one another, each man building his case about who is the greatest and why the other disciples are further down the pecking order. I mean, you can, you can almost hear Matthew as the tax collector, the money guy, saying, you know, we wouldn't nearly be in as good a shape financially if it wasn't for me and my knowledge about money, and there's no way ministry can get on without money. So we should be very grateful. And, and um, Andrew noting that his, his gifts of mercy and evangelism, as he's traditionally known for, has grown the numbers of those who have come into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. He could certainly be numbered as among the lead of the disciples. But then, of course, Peter shares with them that he was the one who identified rightly who Jesus was. He is the Christ. And Jesus said, I was right. And James and John said, yeah, and then he said, you were Satan right after that. (laughs) I think we should have a shot at being in charge. We are the ones who are the greatest around here. Now, it sounds childish at its most basic level when you read, and they argued about who was greatest. We're like, who are these guys? But if you think contextually, the discussion may not be quite as crazy or as childish as it seems. I want you to take into note in verses 30 and 31, Jesus has been teaching his disciples privately about his coming crucifixion. He has just told them that he is going to go to Jerusalem and be delivered into the hands of men, verse 31, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise." Now, it's true that we are told in the text there in verse 32 that they didn't understand what it was he was talking about. And they were afraid to query uh, any more about it. But I think we don't want to misunderstand what Mark is trying to communicate there in verse 32. He's not saying these people, these disciples, they don't understand basic Aramaic. When Jesus said killed, they thought he meant life. No, no, no. They have a vocabulary and a dictionary, and they understood the language that Jesus was speaking in. They just didn't understand the meaning of what he was communicating. That's different. There's a difference between hearing the words and knowing their definitions and actually you know, gathering the meaning of what's being communicated. They were confused about what Jesus was actually teaching. But when they heard him say, I will be killed, they understood what he was saying. They understood that he was going to die. Or they understood in some way, shape, or form, metaphorically, that he was going to lose his position, his platform, his privilege, and something tragic was going to happen. And with that being the case, is it possible that the disciples begin to reflect that if they lose Jesus... Either his platform or his privilege, or maybe even his life, that the question becomes, how will the ministry continue? Where would we go without Jesus? Consider this dialogue. Hey, now Jesus has said multiple times, guys, that he's he's going to be killed. Now, we've not known him to be wrong, so I'm thinking we should take this really seriously. If on the off chance that he really is going to be killed, I know he said that rise again thing, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. But if he dies, what is it that we're going to do? Who is going to lead in his stead if he dies? 
Who carries the torch of the ministry? How does the impact of what it is that we've started continue into the days ahead? If this is the context of the disciples' deliberation around who is greatest, the potential of taking Jesus' words seriously, though misunderstanding what they mean, a little bit of sympathy can be headed their way with regards to why they would be arguing about who is greatest. Because they were arguing. That's the word that verse 34 actually gives us for the way in which they were dialoguing with one another. Maybe this is more along the lines of a fretful conversation about who among the disciples is the best fit to take the mantle should Jesus die. Who is going to carry the movement forward into the future? For some readers here in Mark chapter 9, this, this notion is strengthened even more when you look at verses 38 and 40 to 42 in the text. Uh, notice in verse 38 what is said of this moment where John now has um, uh, stopped some exorcist, some, some person exercising power uh, in the name of Jesus. He comes to him and notice what John says, teacher, speaking to Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now consider if they're wondering who's going to be the, the, the one who will lead the movement going forward. Who's the greatest among the disciples who's most fit to take the mantle should they lose Jesus. Now they've run across an interloper. Here is someone who is an uncommissioned disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ doing powerful things in the name of Christ and they don't even know his name. This is very stressful when we start thinking about a movement that's going forward into the future. What if multiple leaders begin to vie for the, for the throne, as it were, of the leadership of the movement? What if the movement splinters? What if people who are not really among us become the people who try to carry the legacy of Jesus forward and they're uncommissioned for the work? This could potentially be a real fear among the disciples. And as John sees this one doing miracles in Jesus' name, he says, this has got to stop. Now, it's also possible, of course, here that John is quite insecure. Insecure because if you'll remember earlier in, the, in Mark chapter 9, the disciples had trouble exercising a demon. And Jesus said, oh, this one, you know, this one doesn't come out except through fasting and, and prayer. And then in the next section, we're told, here's one who we don't even know his name is exercising demons, doing things that we ourselves have had trouble doing. Could it be that there are people more powerful than us, Jesus, that are out there? Could it be that someone other than us could actually lead into the future? How could an unsanctioned man be doing what the disciples themselves failed to do? Could John and the disciples be upstaged by some upstart? Again, if this is the concern of the disciples, who's going to be first? That's Jesus' words here. Who's going to be the leader? If you're going to be great, this kind of level of concern is actually understandable at some point. They're concerned about what the future actually holds. But they're concerned because they've misunderstood Jesus. Don't miss that. They're making these concerns, they're making these plans, they're having these dialogues. Why? Because they don't get it. They don't get it. 
How many of our concerns in life are just like that? The anxieties and the fears that we experience, the struggles that we deal with, the head noise that we walk around with because we are simply not getting it. We're not having the gospel and the truth of God's word registered to us in a powerful and transformative way. And we start out on our own with anxious thoughts and fretful conversations about what would happen if this happened and if that happened and what would we need to do. And we find ourselves completely tied in knots mentally and emotionally. The disciples did not understand and we're told they were afraid to ask him. <laughs> now, this fear, this fear could come as would come for some of us when we want to you know, talk to our boss about something that... Should have been plain, but wasn't plain. And we need to ask for a second and a third and maybe a fourth explanation. We're like, he's going to lose his temper on me. But of course, they have no, uh, no reason to believe that Jesus would act in such a way towards them. Why would they be afraid? Well, maybe they're afraid to know the truth. You know, sometimes we're, we are fearful of the things that have happened or may happen and if we're going to get that diagnosis and it's terminal, we'd rather, we'd rather just not know. We'd rather just not know. We're afraid he's going to tell us, hey, I really mean literal death here. It's not a metaphor. I'm going to go die. I thought you would say that. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. I don't want that news. That sends my anxieties out the roof. And fear, though, however, and misunderstanding what it is that Jesus has said, notice what they've done. They've begun collecting resumes. They're going to replace the leader. They're going to find the guy who is the right succession plan to Jesus, who could lead the kingdom of God and build the church after Jesus is gone. They have put themselves together as a search committee. And they've made a tragic mistake because in their minds, they have moved beyond Jesus and they have put themselves in charge. They have moved beyond Jesus and they have put themselves in charge. They don't even understand what he's saying, but they're sure they've got to figure a plan out. Two evidences that we see of pride showing up in the life of the disciples in the midst of this fearful moment. The first is this, comparison. Comparison. The disciples, as soon as they get their eyes off of Jesus, as soon as they move beyond him and his words, they start looking at one another and they start comparing themselves. Now, this is our tendency, isn't it? Whenever we're not focused upon Christ and our identity is not secure in Jesus... When we don't realize and recognize openly and honestly that we are robed in his righteousness right now if we have trusted in him by faith. And there is nothing that can sabotage the standing that we have with him. That he lives to make intercession for us. That right now he is at the right hand of the Father. And he has granted to us his spirit that he has promised and will walk with us and provide for us all the step of the way. There's nothing good or bad that we can do in this life that would make us more loved or in any way sacrifice his love for us. That's a strong place in which to stand. But tell me, how alive have you really been to that truth? How real has that been to you? Has it actually animated your life? Is it the way that you operate at work when promotion time comes around? Or, or those of you in here about to finish the school year and you're looking over GPAs 
Is that how you feel? Identity secure in Jesus. 3.5. We're all in the same boat depending on where our sphere is. It's a struggle to not look horizontally about how we're doing rather than looking vertically to the truth of who God and what he said about what he's done for us. The disciples have lost sight of their identity in Jesus and immediately they started comparing themselves. Maybe you walked in this morning and you looked across the room and you're like, oh, there she is. She is always put together. I'm just barely making it. I mean, listen to my kids. They can't even sit through church, right? You know, their kids are perfect. Do you see what he pulled up in? Do you see what we're pulling up in to church? We laugh because that's how it works. That's the struggle, you see. Comparison, because why? We don't have our eyes on Jesus. And we're not looking at others through the eyes of Jesus. Why is it that John couldn't say to James, your gifts are mine and my gifts are yours in the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't have to be Peter, says Andrew, because I have Peter. God has given him to us as the disciples and we are one with Jesus. You see how free that is? See how powerful it is when you begin to look through the lens of Jesus? You begin to understand your identity in Christ, the draining, wearying power of comparison of one another begins to go the way of all the earth. Comparison, that's number one. Notice the second evidence of the disciples' pride. Competition. Competition. It's actually a kind of form of comparison, isn't it? The disciples notice are in competition against other ministry servants of Jesus Christ. You see, that's that second story. Here, here's John saying, Jesus... I know you're going to be so glad you got me on your team. I found someone overthrowing Satan's kingdom in your name. And I told him to stop. Aren't I something? You're lucky to have me. I can spot fraud when I see it. This guy, notice... He doesn't follow with us. I mean you. No, I mean us. No, I definitely mean us. I, I, can you believe this? This guy, this guy is getting more fruit than we were getting earlier in the chapter. He's, there's, there's, something, there's something wrong with that smell. Like there's something wrong here. And Jesus says, you've missed it. You're in competition with people who are on your team. Because you don't know who your leader is that you're following. Is this mission about you, John? Or is this mission about me, John? He who is casting out demons in my name can't come back and speak ill of me in the next breath. He who is not against us is for us. Now, it's quite clear in that statement that Jesus is not trying to say that anyone who doesn't expressly align himself against 
Christ is definitely walking in light of the kingdom. In fact, it's interesting in the other places in the gospel, he'll actually use the very opposite phrase. (laughs) He who is not for us is against us in an entirely different context. In a context where his disciples and he are being claimed by the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders of operating in the power of the devil. That he is casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus says, no, we've got to be very clear. That's not how we're doing it. He who is not with me is against me. That's the right, that's the right way to read it. And then here he's saying, no, listen, this is someone working in my name. This is someone evidencing the power of the kingdom. This is someone who is showing, God is showing forth his kindness in the advance of overcoming sin and darkness. He who is not against us is for us. Now we've already probably seen there's some insecurity, isn't there? And this is one of the ways we know. Are you in the pride of comparison or competition uh, with others? Well, you'll probably see these internal struggles. You're painfully insecure. (laughs) You are painfully insecure. You're insecure because you're only as good as your last success and the last person you compared yourself to. I remember this. I mean, many of you have played sports or you've gone to school or you've found yourself in business and, and you found yourself in a pool of people that for whatever reason you excelled above them and you had great success. You were king of the hill. And then all of a sudden you got into a bigger pond and you realized you weren't what you thought you were. And it was deeply humbling. In those moments where we begin to realize that we are, we've really built more identity around these matters rather than who we are in Christ, a painful insecurity begins to show up inside. And we are rupturous in pride when the moment we compare ourselves and feel like we did pretty well, and we're bottomed out in depression. The moment that we find that we're not quite what we thought we were cracked up to be. It's insecurity from within. But fear from without. This is the other indication that you're wrapped in pride. Fear from without. That's John's problem. Someone out there is going to come take my place. Someone out there is going to come in and and mess the whole plan A up. I was to sit at the right hand of Jesus. This guy's looking like right-hand material. Right? Fear from without. This is the concern. I mean, again, this is a real issue. Even, okay, let's say it. We're in a Presbyterian church this morning. This is a struggle sometimes among Presbyterian types, even when it comes to ministry. You know, we've got the corner on orthodoxy. We've got our P's and Q's right. We've got our I's dotted and our T's crossed. There's no way God is not going to use us until he decides to use someone else. And it's just not really quite okay if the revival comes down the street. Because it's supposed to come through our channels. This kind of stuff happens all the time in subtle ways, significant ways in our lives. The disciples have been fighting against one another about who is greatest. They've been pushing against those who are not a part of their tribe. And Jesus is saying, that's not it at all. You've lost your way. Becoming a leader in the kingdom of God does not mean you will compare yourself. 
nor compete against others to separate yourself. Instead, you're not going to be focused on yourself at all. You're going to become a servant. And this is why Jesus gives us a lesson in humility here. Now, when I say humility, I wonder what it is that you, you hear. I wonder if you hear, yeah, he's going to tell me I shouldn't think so highly of myself. I am telling you that. That is true. That's probably true, true for me. I'm listening as well. Sometimes I get asked, what sermons do you listen to? My own. I'm trying, trying, to, trying to listen to my own. Um, and listen to others too, but I, I need to hear this. Uh, don't think so highly of yourself, right? And for, so, for some of us, we go, you're right. I, I, will, I will consider myself bad, lowly, terrible, can't do anything. Eeyore complex, right? That's not it at all. It's not what the Bible's calling us to. It's not calling us to think bad of ourselves. And when we think less of ourselves, it's not, not the point. I think some of us really misunderstand humility because we say things like, oh, she's so humble. She's so quiet and unassuming, works behind the scenes, never any fanfare. I mean, that could mean she's introverted and fearful. It doesn't mean she's humble. She may be humble, but it doesn't necessarily mean that she's humble. Let's remember, Jesus is the humblest person on the face of the earth. Would you call him quiet and unassuming? Behind the scenes. No fanfare. Not exactly. Maybe we've not grasped what we mean when we actually talk about uh, humility. Because it's not just being walked over by one another. It's not merely uh, thinking less of one, oneself. Virtue is actually a, this virtue is actually a very powerful reality. Where we are taking the power and the strength and the influence that God has given to each of us. And all of us in this room have this. In varying measures. And we are using it not for ourselves but we are using it for the good of others. That's the sole focus of our life, is to give glory to God and to do good for others with the power and influence and the authority that the Lord has given to us. That's really the picture here of this text. This is why Jesus says, look at this child. He brings this child into the picture and he says, this child, whoever receives this child is the one who truly receives me. Now, I want you to understand what he's saying there. He's not saying that children are inherently um, humble. I don't know if you've been around them or not, but um, I have good evidence that they're not just naturally humble. Okay, So he's not just saying that about children. He's, he's recognizing that they are the lowest station in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. Children were possessed by their parents, often sold into slavery, uh, they, they, were to, they, were, they were to be seen and not heard, as the saying goes. Uh, this is so different for us in, in North America, who kind of wrap our whole lives around our children. In fact, I mean, I was you know, watching baseball yesterday and, and watching my son play. And as we were as we're watching, I'm thinking, this would have been, you know, I'm thinking about the sermon, right? Watching baseball, thinking about the sermon. So as we're, as we're watching baseball, I go, you know, this would be so weird in the first century uh, they, to have had all of these adults with all of their chairs and their coolers and their stuff, and they're going to go and watch their six-year-old <laughs> throw a ball around. Like, this would have never, like, it, I mean, it would have never happened in the Greco-Roman world. It's a very different context in which we live. So you have to get, in this context, Jesus brings a child before them, the lowest station 
that which is available to him in the home, takes the child into his arms and says, if you receive this one, you receive me. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who serves with love the lowest of stations in life. Now, why is it that Jesus says that? He says that because that's what he's doing. Maybe you should be asking yourself, okay, how do I become humble? I've actually read some people this week who were giving some advice on how to be humble. It was weird, most of it. They said things like, well, just, you know, don't think about yourself. You know what humility is? Don't think about yourself at all. That's what you, okay. <laughs> Good luck, everyone. <laughs> don't think about yourself this week. Amen. Amen. You know, let's pray. It's not going to happen. Okay? I'm just going to say, like, that you're not going to get out of this room before you're thinking about yourself. You see, actually, Jesus' and the Bible's answer is so much deeper and more profound and more wise The Bible knows that you've got to have your mind on something. You can't not think of yourself. That's that's not a plan. You've got to have your mind consumed with Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It's yours, Christian. It's yours in Jesus Christ who did not count himself, his equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming a man and obedient, even obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself all the way to the cross. Do you see what your mind, where it has to be? Do you want to be humble? Think about Jesus all the time. Prayerfully have your heart set on Christ. You're not going to be successful in thinking bad about yourself or trying not to think as less about yourself or not think about yourself at all. It's more about what you're going to think about. And what this scripture is telling us is that our minds have got to be on Christ. Why is it that he has set before them as an intro to this passage the display of his calling? I am going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. All of that's the beginning of this passage. Why? Because he wants them to know that what he is doing in his mission is exactly what he's calling them to in humble service. He has come to care for the children. That's what he's come to do. He's come to care for the children. That's who we are. You do realize that. We are called the children of God. Why? Because we were estranged. We were cut off from the family of God. We were without hope and destined for hell in the world. And Jesus became like us. Was obedient under the law in the way that we could not. And he went all the way to the cross to pay for all of the ways that we have rejected him. In order that he would make us his own so that he would call us the children of God. And what is he doing? He's walking beside you every day. Providing for everything that you need. Promising to sanctify you. That one day he will behold you when he returns in glory and say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. And you'll think to yourself, No way, Jose. And you'll be able to look in his eyes and know that the answer to the well done that he says to you is the well done of what he has done for you. That's what you'll know. When you've got that in your heart, 
When that becomes the operating center of your life, it's not about not thinking about you. It's about thinking about him. And when that becomes the means by which you recognize that you look down at that person and you snub that individual and you're always trying to climb up the ladder past that person and you realize you've never actually looked at them with the lens of Jesus. With the lens of Christ. And all of a sudden you realize that even in your failure to serve as he has called you to serve, he is serving you there too. That yes, he's even forgiven that. Now, I would like to suggest that that's a Savior worth serving. That's a Savior worth following. One who will lift you up as you walk in obedience and humble you. And one who, when you fail, won't crush you, but lift you up and carry you the rest of the way. That's the kind of Savior I need. I'd like to suggest I'm not too far off from the rest of us in this room. The greatest in the kingdom of God. Well, you know who it is? It's Jesus. The servant of all. And to the degree that we serve as he serves, in the spirit of his service, to that degree we will know the greatness of the kingdom. Father in heaven, would you grant this now insight, wisdom, strength, and obedience that we would not only know your will, but we would follow it. And it would be our happy choice to walk in the commands of your word, and the grace that supplies the obedience. Come and meet us now. In Jesus' name. Amen.